Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by James J. Brosnahan, author of the new book, Justice at Trial, Courtroom Battles and Groundbreaking Cases. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Jim, this is a memoir, uh, and you're very clear in the introduction and, and kind of throughout that this memoir is pulled from your long history as a trial lawyer. What made you decide that you finally wanted to put all your stories down in book form? Well, thank you. That's an interesting question. I wanted to convey as best I could, and I think I had some success in what uh, jury trials are really like, what lawyers are really like, what judges are like. Uh, And to do that, I picked from my 150 trials, I picked uh, 19, which are chapters in the book. And especially that each chapter relates to some public issue right now that's going on that people might be interested in. For example, the Mexican border and refugees or a woman being treated badly by a very powerful a corporate woman being treated badly by an aging financial man who set out to get her and she got indicted and went from chairperson of a Hewlett Packard to an indicted person. And I tell the story, I represented a, a man who had been in jail for 17 years and we got him out. Uh, and that story is there. Uh, a man charged with terrorism for making bombs in San Francisco, where when he was arrested, the neighbors said what they always say, which is, uh, you know, they seem like such nice people. Well, they really were nice people. And that story is of the trial and all that is in there. It is, and there's international intrigue involved in that story. There there was. Yeah, thank you. Uh, It involved the Philippines and the Marcos dictatorship. And my client was uh, one of the leading opponents of Marcos and uh, had been in the Philippines. And I tell that story. I then... Uh, branched out, the book kind of took hold of me as as to lawyers. Uh, young lawyers are featured in the book. It's a, it is a memoir, but it's often about other people. And why do lawyers do what they do? And I got fascinated by that. And I, I did some examples and wrote, why do lawyers represent despised people? And to some extent, I was thinking about cases I had, but why do they do it? They could easily write wills, which would be nice, and go home at 4.30. I mean, you know, it's the way I see that kind of work. I do think that trial lawyers, to be a trial lawyer, first of all, you have to be a wonderful storyteller. And I do think that that translated to the book. Uh, that That was a good fit. I sure tried. I have suspense in each chapter. The the idea is what's going to happen here. This is, uh, at at that time, is important. For example, I walked in to be a federal prosecutor on a Monday, never having tried a case in Arizona where we then lived. 
before we moved to San Francisco. And I was handed on Tuesday a file to try. I was asked by my boss, would you try the case? I said, sure, this is it. This is why I went to law school. I opened the file. The first degree murder case. It was a capital murder case. And I tell you, that was one of the first chapters. And I was like, what? You know, you hear many young lawyers even today saying, you know, I went to law school. That didn't mean I was taught how to uh, behave in a courtroom, exactly how a trial is supposed to go. And the thought that, what was it, some 12 days after you started work, you were the prosecutor in a capital murder case? Yeah. Uh, talk about the deep end. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about that experience in particular and what you think it taught you as such a young lawyer? Well, it was a stabbing case. Uh, two members of the Pima tribe south of uh, Phoenix had stabbed to death a young man. They were all juveniles, by the way. And uh, to answer your question, I sat and decided, well, it was an easy question for me, that juveniles, I wasn't going to ask for the death penalty. I wasn't going to do it. I was opposed to it anyway, but I wasn't going to do it. What did I learn? The position of prosecutor, and in later years, the position of lawyer, is a powerful position. And no one, by the way, had checked my mental status or you know, given me a test on how to do anything. And I, I did enjoy my time in law school, and I learned a lot of important things. Oh, and you had a very famous uh Classmate as well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Well, there were nine women there in my class. And there she was. And there was my wife, Carol, uh, by the way. And uh, I talk about that a little bit. And uh, I tell law students that story because we thought we should have a cook. And there were six of us guys. And we thought we should have a cook. So Carol started to cook, and we promised each other, the, the guys, that we wouldn't date the cook because it'd just get messy. And three weeks later, Carol and I got engaged, and three weeks after that, we got married. And that's Judge Carol Brosnahan. <laughs> yes, Judge Brosnahan, 40 years on the bench. And those nine women, by the way, I think there, there are four or five judges out of it, including RBG. So they were quite a quite a class. But I didn't know anything about how to try that first case. I didn't have a clue. I did my best. And uh, the story is in the book. It is. You mentioned that you tried to work in uh, some of your observations, some of your advice. And I think uh, you do mention that this comes up rather a bit, but I loved what you had to say about juries. I'm just going to read a short passage for listeners. Uh, and again, this is from Justice at Trial, Courtroom Battles and Groundbreaking Cases. And you said, I'm often asked if juries know what they are doing. My answer is yes. In every trial, jurors are asked by the judge if they felt their prior jury service had been satisfactory. Almost all of them believe they reached the right result. Judges believe juries reach the right verdict most of the time. For many years after verdicts, I have talked to jurors only to have them tell me of a logical point that neither lawyer argued. Genuine humility is the right garment to wear when arguing to an American jury. Critiques of the jury system often come from authoritarians with a touch of social arrogance. So that really struck me. And 
I would love to hear more of your thoughts about how lawyers should approach juries or how the public should think about jury service. Well, with the sensitivity of understanding the truth, which is that that the 12 people, six people, uh, it's a different matter, different. We can talk about that some other day, but 12 is smarter than you are. And then they're going to, the 12 will remember all the facts. They will discuss all the facts. Uh, They will make the best they can out of the instructions of law. Uh, Hopefully, it's a jurisdiction which uses uh, good language, make it easy to do it, make it easier at least. They're going to do all that. One of the things that trial lawyers, and I've known a great, it's been my really an honor to know a lot of trial lawyers over the years that tried so many cases. They would agree almost universally with what I just said. And it's important as an institution, the American Board of Trial Advocates is devoted to supporting the jury system. And uh, it's a very important part of our government. And I've seen it over and over again. When I lost, I put a couple of losses in the book to to explore what is that like, you know, when you lose. But I understood there were two big arguments, and one on either side. And, you know, they've got to they've got to decide one of those. And it's a very tough job for them, but they're awful good at it. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, I'll still be speaking with Jim Brosnahan, author of Justice at Trial. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, still here with Jim Brosnahan. So, Jim, you say in the book that every jury trial you had, and as you mentioned, there were 150 of them, you become immersed in the world of the case, of the people involved in the case. How did you choose which of your trials you wanted to outline in the book and to to get into more? 
I thought, you know, I, I read newspapers, plural, in the morning and uh, keep track of what's happening politically and uh, socially to the best, you know, that one can follow those things these days. And what would they be interested in reading about? Uh, the prosecution, I was called back from defending cases to prosecute Casper Weinberger, who lied to Congress, was the Secretary of Defense. He lied to Congress, and he lied to the FBI. And why did he do that? It was a presidential cover-up to protect President Reagan, which I say in the book, I think President Reagan did a lot of very good things, admirable things, and he was certainly very likable. But he sent missiles to Iran, and that was illegal. And that was a cover-up. And I tell the story of being in Washington for 10 weeks, interviewing senators, uh, secret agents, and uh, members of the cabinet, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I thought that, you know, I thought that, that'd be interesting. So that's the way I, I pick them. And it, it depends on the reader that, but I think I was told the other day by someone who had read the book that uh, they read it and uh, I have a little tag at the end of every chapter leads into the next chapter. And he said that he enjoyed, you know, going from one chapter to another. And out of that, you do get a picture of law, lawyers, victims, crimes, civil cases, certain selected civil cases. And uh, I didn't do what's in a lot of biography. I didn't just pick cases that I won or, you know, whatever. I appreciated that as a reader because certainly uh, my father was a trial lawyer and not every case was a win. And that is part of the life of a trial lawyer. You aren't going to win every case. And I thought your advice or, or peek behind the curtain showing how you deal with that was a good addition to the book, a great addition to the memoir. I was surprised when I was writing the book because I, I got so tired thinking about 60 years of trials, including their scenes where I'm waiting for the jury for a day, two days, three days, criminal, criminal case. And you're, you're out in the hall. I used to pitch pennies listening to the sound of the penny hitting the wall. Uh, I had one case I talk about in Hawaii. The jury was out a long, long time. And what is it like for the lawyer? What is it like to wait to see what the future of your client is going to be? And there's a moment in cases where the jury returns, and then one of two things happens. The client comes with you, and you walk them out of the building. That's a holy moment as far as I'm concerned. Or they convict, and they're taken through the door. And sometimes you know they're not coming out for quite a while. And you go home 
by yourself, you have literally lost the client. And I try to describe those scenes. Um, I think if you're a trialer for a long time, you, you do become a teller of stories. And I tried to do that. You mentioned you're, you've been a trial lawyer for a long time. There was a 60-year career. My question for you is, what do you think changed the most in your experience in the legal profession over that time? Well, at the core of our conversation, the frequency of trials has been dramatically reduced. Remember, I started in 59. My first trial was 61. And in those days, lawyers went to trial quite often. You didn't have the compulsory settlement conferences. You didn't have uh, prosecutors had no power over sentencing. And that was important because you could go to trial. There weren't as many mandatory minimum sentences where you, you know, and, and the sentencing changed in a way that reduced the number of trials. And my heroes of the day, both in Phoenix and then when we moved to San Francisco, were these fantastic trial lawyers that were in trial all the time. Those were my heroes. But mostly, in my case, if you had a trial, I will represent you. <laughs> you know, somebody stole your dog, I'm ready. Okay, I'll be an ex by Monday, I'll be an expert on stolen dogs. Okay. Any old, I have no standards. I had no standards. And uh, my partner's very tolerant in that regard. And so, I, you know, I started at the right time because the trials are reduced. There's still a lot of important trials, and you see them on television. But uh, that changed. The money, I started at $300 a month associate in a very good personal injury firm, $300 a month. And I didn't mind, you know, you, your expectation of money was not the same. The amount that lawyers charged was not what it is today. And there's no sense me bemoaning that since I'm a beneficiary of it, but that's a big change from when I started. I think the law is better now than it was. I think sophisticated reports, studies, yield data that shows this is not working. And as I say in the book, I'm really at times talking directly to young people and young lawyers about using the law to reform what you find. An awful lot of lawyers do that. And I think there's more support for fixing things today in the old days. One last point, not to go on too long here with this answer, but the courts were more morally oriented. It was a more traditional moral atmosphere that you were in. And today, it's more practical. Let's get the job done. Uh, I do think the courts are overburdened with 
all the litigation. I think that drives the settlement instinct. They have to settle cases because they can't possibly try more of them. And that's too bad. One thing that you're careful to do throughout the book as you discuss these trials is you point out the people who were with you. And just for listeners who, you know, may not have read your bio, you served in two different U.S. attorney's offices. Uh, you worked for Cooper, White & Cooper, and then you became a partner at Morrison & Forrester, where you still are. And you talk about the importance of constructing a team and working with young associates. And I would love to hear more from you directly about what senior lawyers can do to construct these teams and give these young associates a chance, and also what you look for when putting together a trial team. Well, in that last question, we used to have conferences about hiring lawyers, and I, I said, this is kind of a shock to my colleagues at Morrison Forrester, but we should hire people who have sold rugs, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, that was a shock. But uh, we should hire people who have worked behind a counter. They see human nature, uh, the good and the bad. They deal with both. They serve the coffee to both. And they see a little bit about what the world is. And to some extent, I think that we've done that over the years. But a much bigger issue uh, in terms of Morris and Forrester was the idea that we would hire people who were talented and we wouldn't care, literally. This is, I'm talking 47 years ago when I got there. We wouldn't care what their background is. If they have talent, that's what we needed. We were an old, old firm, but we were outside the mainstream of firms at that time. And that's what we needed. And so we did that. Uh, we did uh, hire uh, diversity, uh, which I I really have devoted my life to as best I can. I wrote a piece, which is in the book, when I was in college at Boston College on the death of Emmett Till. Race was important to me then when I lived in Boston, my original home. And it was important as the book shows, uh, uh, participated in things. And I was uh, for 11 years chairman of the diversity committee in San Francisco. I wish I could say, you know, we changed everything and diversity is not a problem. <laughs> As we know from recent events, it is a, a problem still. But we wanted to grow the firm in a good way. And by the way, today, we still have those attitudes, as a lot of firms do now. Uh, so I identify, I talked yesterday with a young summer associate in one of our offices. He had called me up and he said, uh, can you talk to me? And I said, sure. And we made a time and he called. We talked about a half an hour. 45 minutes, he's worried that he, he wants to do litigation, but he's worried that he speaks too softly. And I told him all the reasons I thought he'll get over it and all the things he can do to practice. So it's not too soft. And I 
told them I had confidence based on my class, which I taught uh, for 10 years, that if he do this practice and all that, he'd be, he'd be fine. I like the idea that young people are coming along. They're idealistic. They want to change things. They want to fix the law. They care. And they have a lot of energy. It does remind me, and you talk in the book about, you know, you came from Boston and, you know, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, the Kennedys in general, uh, and the energized youth movement behind them made a big impact on you. Is that a reason why you included it in the book to sort of reference yeah. the energy you're feeling today? Yeah, I think I'm still... This is me in the past, but I'm still driven. Let me tell you two facts. Number one, the, the great-grandparents of the Kennedys, the family that yielded up heroes across the board for the American people uh, and a president of the United States, the great-grandparents came out of Ireland at the time of the hunger. Patrick Kennedy was the first, and he landed in Boston, and he was required to live in North Point in Boston in the slums, where that was the only place allowed for the Irish at that time. That whole history, I know too much about Irish history. I, I had cases, matters, in Northern Ireland where I saw the effect of it all. So I identify with underdogs. Sometimes that's got me in trouble because they were overdogs and not underdogs. <laughs> but uh, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta be careful. But uh, I identify strongly with people who have been excluded and are being excluded from the high-sounding liberties that we all have in mind, especially equality. What does that mean? It's complicated, but what does it mean? And if you come to my office in the, when I was practicing and told me the story about something, I get my horse, my white horse, and I climb up and off we go to do what we could. You gotta you do what you can. We're gonna hear from our advertisers when we return. I'll still be speaking with James J. Brosnahan, author of Justice at Trial, Courtroom Battles, and Groundbreaking Cases. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. So, Jim, we mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg was your classmate at Harvard Law School, but that was not the only time you ran into various Supreme Court justices or had business before the court. And I would love for you to talk about your experience with William Rehnquist. Well, he was in Phoenix. He was a very distinguished lawyer because he, was, he had clerked on the U.S. Supreme Court. There weren't many people in Phoenix, many lawyers who had done that. So he stood out as an interesting person. And I had started to look for a job in Phoenix before I got connected to San Francisco. And I interviewed with his firm, and he, there were only two people in the firm, and they didn't have any litigation, really. 
So I, they offered me a job. So I, I politely said no. When I was a federal prosecutor in uh, 1962, I was called to a voting booth, uh, a voting a school that was being used for voting. And uh, I was the person in charge of taking complaints. I took an FBI agent with me. There were complaints that they called in that Republicans were challenging voters. And they were doing it excessively. You're allowed to challenge voters, but yet you couldn't go on and on and on and create a line. And that's what was happening at that school. And the result of it was that people had to leave. They had to go to work. Uh, and so, and it was a, a Black American, Hispanic voting area. And it was deliberate. It was part of a program that was starting, actually, that year, as it turned out, as I learned, and uh, is still going on on the Republican side. So anyway, I got to the school, and there was William Rehnquist, Bill Rehnquist, and uh, the people who were there pointed at him as a source of problems. And I had my, I, I hardly ever showed my federal badge because that's kind of tacky. But I did that day, I think I showed the badge and I said, well, what's the problem? I had an FBI agent there. Everybody calm down. It was amazing the effect that that has on people. And uh, so I said, what's happening and all that. And uh, went back to my office. It, whatever the problem was, they weren't going to do more of it. And years went by, and I would occasionally tell people a story. And when he went on the court as a justice, I thought that must be a wonderful feeling to go on the Supreme Court. And then I got a call in uh, 86 by someone who said, you had a, an issue with Rehnquist. And I said, yes, but that was years ago. I mean. He could have changed totally by then, and Southern politicians have apologized. It could be very different. And uh, the caller said, no, have, did you read his testimony and in 71 when he went on the court? He was up for chief justice, for your listeners. And I said, no, I didn't read the testimony. And then she told me what he said. He denied participation, basically. And um, I said, oh. And the next day I got a call from a staff member on the Judiciary Committee, would I testify against probably the future Chief Justice? That is a call. And, <laughs> yeah. And I said, uh, well, if you subpoena me, I will. And they did, and I did. And I went back to Washington. The funny thing is what fun I had as a witness. I really, you know, I've been putting people on the stand for 25 years. I understand how you do that. You do it accurately, you're careful, and you don't go. And I was, the, the Democrats were almost worse than the Republicans. This is when I first understood the, the truth in Washington, D.C., which is sometimes elusive. 
And the Democrats, were, you know, were kind of the mood was, well, there were babies that were throwing up. They had spikes, you know, they were killing the babies. No, no, I didn't see anything like that. And the Republicans took after me. And finally, I just made a comment that got in the New York Times, but it ended a serious cross-examination in the interest of time. I'll save you that, but it's in the book. So that was the experience, except that the book also talks about my next argument in the U.S. Supreme Court representing political parties in California. And uh, I walked into the court, and there is Chief Justice William Rehnquist sitting in the in the middle seat. The rest is in the book. The rest is in the book, it's true. But had you had any communication with him after that, or was it, hi, Bill? I did, yeah. <laughs> you know... Things happen in life, and, you know, what are you going to do? I always liked him. I mean, he had a kind of dry wit. He was a funny person when he'd come back out west. But um, he disqualified himself from three cases I was on. Uh, I wrote a brief and signed it with my name, of Roe v. Wade, back in the day, and he disqualified himself from that case. So, uh, but I saw him at a dinner many years later. He was reportedly in the newspapers ill and all that. And I talked to him and asked him how he was. And he asked me how I was. And we chatted for a minute. And it was all put aside. And uh, the reactions of people to that event was very interesting. And that's in the book too. And if you were a Democrat, you thought it was fine. If you were a Republican, we had a Republican partner who started examining my head for horns. You know, it's like uh, I had done something terrible by telling the truth in public. Well, one of the interesting techniques that I thought you used in the book is you pull out um, some of your cross-examinations. I was reminded of this when you talked about being on the witness stand. In the book, you have the transcripts of your questions back and forth um, with various witnesses. Sometimes it's during jury selection. And then uh, in between the exchanges, sometimes you'll insert commentary and explain what you were thinking in that moment and why you asked the question. Um, I loved that technique. I wondered why you included it and how, you know, how you still were able to find all the trial transcripts, all of this. Let's talk about the research behind the book and finding those those documents when you knew you wanted to tell the story of one of these cases. This is, uh, it's almost embarrassing because when I have to say it out loud to other humans, it's like, you did what? <laughs> When I was in high school, I played a lot of sports, and a box score would appear of a baseball team, I remember, and it would be in the Boston Herald. And I would cut it out when I'm a sophomore in high school and would save it. From that day to this day, I have saved every mention of anything I did. Why was that? It didn't, there was no grand plan. And my mother-in-law 
lovely, one of the lovely people in the world, Carol, uh, Celia Simon, spent a lot of time putting all of it together in books. And I kept all, we used to get daily transcripts of trials and during the trial so we could see what just happened yesterday or we could use the language against a witness. So I kept all those. So that's that's where that came from. But I've been teaching cross-examination for, I don't know, 50 years. And uh, I this is for the general reader, this book, though. I mean, this, this is not technical, but I wanted to convey the suspense of the cross-examination. Will it work? Will it not work? And I tried to do that in the book. And I hope I hope that was successful. I definitely think it was. Well, Jim, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people are interested in picking up Justice at Trial, Courtroom Battles, and Groundbreaking Cases, or just interested in contacting you, uh, maybe chatting a little more like that summer associate, uh, what would be a good way to do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. That's a good way to do it. I have a... Uh, you can email me. I'm at jbrosnahan at mofo, M-O-F-O, dot com. And uh, I gave a talk yesterday to a large group of lawyers and uh, got some emails last night. They were, for example, I don't mind saying it, I, they asked for my reading list. I have a reading list I give to lawyers. And it's got all kinds of legal books in it of all kinds and uh, so they can they can do that if they email me well thank you for that offer to my listeners if you enjoyed this episode of the modern law library please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service and if you want to reach out to us maybe to suggest a book or guest that i have on the show you can always do that it's books at abajournal.com thank you for joining us 